Hello, my name is Alexandra Baton Bailey, and welcome to the Teaching Beyond the Podium podcast series. This podcast is hosted by the Center for Teaching Excellence at the University of Florida. Our guests share their best tips, strategies, innovations, and stories about teaching. Dr. Eleni Bozia is a fascinating person, and the work she does is equally interesting. She lives at the intersection of the ancient world and classics and artificial intelligence, a marriage I was surprised to hear about and curious to learn more about. Uh, so starting with uh, who I am, I'm uh, Dr. Eleni Bozia. I'm an associate professor of classics and digital humanities uh, at the Department of Classics. I study linguistic and cultural diversity in the Greek and Roman worlds and uh, its intersection with modern globalism. I can get into that later if you want. I'm also the founder of the uh, Digital Epigraphy and Archaeology Project, which is an international consortium for the uh, 3D digitization and preservation of uh, historical artifacts. Uh, and I'm the founder head of the Data-Driven Humanities uh, Research Group that works on uh, digital and AI-focused projects. So overall, I work, if you think about it, both in my research and teaching on the intersection and collaboration between the humanities and the sciences, one way or another. Dr. Bozia's story is filled with interesting conundrums. Her story, career path, and educational background tell the story of a lifelong learner. I moved here in 2004, so it's been a while. Wow. I came from uh, Glasgow, so another, you know, unlikely connection from uh, really, really cold to really, really hot, <laughs> in addition to everything else. Uh, I was doing my MA, my MPhil uh, at the University of Glasgow, and then I applied uh, for PhDs in the States, and I chose the University of Florida. So I did my first PhD here. In classical studies. Really? And you have another PhD? Uh, in informatics uh, from the University of Leipzig in Germany. I commuted. <laughs> My husband uh, had a job, has a job here, has had a job here uh, since then at the University of Florida. Uh-huh. Uh, and I was, uh, I kept, after I graduated, I uh, kept the, uh, the connection. I served as an adjunct for a while. I was teaching some courses while I started doing my PhD in Germany. Currently, Eleni is working on a number of projects. Her ultimate goal is not just to conduct research, but to create opportunities for everyone to engage with the results and not limit these results to academia, but instead make them broadly accessible. I have two main projects, and uh, they intersect with obviously my personal research and publications, but also they have public facing in the sense that I want to make them available to the public beyond academia. I want to bring them to the classroom to begin with. Yeah. Uh, and then I want to make them more relatable so that actually people can connect and they can get to these lessons from the past. Otherwise, we are just you know doing art or literature or academia for the sake of art, literature and academia. And we are not bringing it to everybody. The most recent, let's say, AI project that I'm working on is uh, to try and create, build the, um, a, a comprehensive history of diversity, equality, inequality, inclusion, exclusion in the Greco-Roman world. How do we do that? Uh, we have the majority, if not all, the surviving ancient Greek and Latin texts, and they are digitized. 
and they are in XML format. So in, they are in uh, a format that can be queried. We can ask questions, let's say, from the yes. machine. So what we do with my group is we are building uh, software so that we can uh, find all the occurrences of any descriptive word throughout Greco-Roman history. What I mean by descriptive, any kind of description. It can be height, uh, weight, hair color, skin color, religion, um, gender, sexuality, sexual orientation, citizenship status, uh, if you are you know, free or a slave at the time, if you are a native-born citizen or if you are a naturalized one, anything, any kind of description, ethnicity, obviously. And the idea is uh, simply at first to determine whether these words were encountered in negative context, positive context or a neutral context. So mm -hmm. they say, I met an African it would be an Africanus, someone from Africa. That would uh, mean, first of all, that they had knowledge of another continent to begin with, and that was just an observation. So we would classify this as a neutral one. Or you will say, uh, I met a Roman who was brutal. Then we make the connection that, okay, we have an ethnicity and we have a negative connotation to that. Or I met someone from there who was really smart. So we are going to categorize these, and as you can imagine, it may seem like a, um, a simple uh, control F uh, search query, but it, it's not that. To begin with, uh, there has never been such a comprehensive history of the, the beginnings, essentially, of diversity, inclusion, exclusion, uh, and or lack thereof. Uh, and then we can see what periods these things were encountered in, uh, by what authors, what regime, so then you can, you know, start drawing different kinds of connections uh, and building different frameworks. Then this is going to be the um, uh, sort of guided uh, machine learning, so that I won't use two technical terms. But uh, then we want to move that up to what we call unsupervised machine learning. So basically, if we have trained the software with all these examples, because we are talking about millions now of yeah. such, um, uh, such descriptive words. If we have trained it, then we hope that we can do the reverse, reverse engineer this so that we can find other texts where these words are not encountered as such. However, we have contexts, similar contexts. Okay. Maybe they are periphrastic. So they say, it, well, for example, uh, uh, um, in our uh, terms, it would be in so many words. <laughs> So they don't use this particular word, but we may have another description that will okay. point us to some sort of inclusion or exclusion, discrimination, yeah. inequality, but without necessarily having reference someone or something particular. So reverse engineering what we already did. Eleni is passionate about making knowledge accessible to all. In particular, helping students understand the unique ability they have to think deeply and broadly and in turn to share their own learning with the community. I realize, and we all, we should all realize that uh, uh, knowledge is everywhere. When you want scientifically proven, proved knowledge, uh, you need to go to the university, you need to go to a college, you need to be educated in general. Mm -hmm. So how do we educate people? First, we start with, uh, we have our publications, we have our conferences, yes, and uh, this is how you can also, you know, cross-reference your results, confirm your results, get questions that there may be something that I haven't thought about this, another suggestion, and this is something that I will get to improve my research by going to a conference and giving a presentation.
but then we need to open the circle. So we need to bring this first to the classroom. Yeah. We need to teach our students about all these things, but also to take it one step further and help them learn how to read and how to process information. So that's another thing. Mm -hmm. When I talk about the unsupervised machine learning, there is a technicality to it. And we are going to do it, you know, using software, yes. But on the other hand, when I uh, work with these students, because I'm working with undergraduate students and we are building this software. So when I'm working with these students and when I'm taking these results and my work into the classroom, what I want them to get out of this is also the unsupervised human learning. So when you have this text, you may not have someone referenced specifically, yeah. but the underlying message is still there. So I'm using AI both for machine learning and, you know, sort of encourage people to think through the text by using AI, but not to speed things up, to make them think slower and think through the text. Yeah. Then beyond that, uh, I also uh, participate in public, um, uh, public initiatives. Uh, so, you know, less technical presentations or meeting with uh, school-age uh, students to get everybody educated because education is a right for everybody. We may not have all the same opportunities to get it, but we certainly, as here in academia, we have the time, we have the space, we have the luxury to be able to share what we learn. So how did a classics professor start working on and with AI? Now that is a fascinating story that merges multiple ancient cultures, the study of languages, and of course, AI. The, the way that I got to this AI project is I had started years ago working on identity and belonging in the Greco-Roman world. So what does that mean again uh, when you, I told you before that I work at the intersection of ancient and modern globalism. So the Roman Empire was an imperialistic power, right? It was an empire, we call it as it was. Uh, the, they conquered everybody, the then known world. Uh, they essentially forced themselves on everyone, right? So we have to deal with the consequences and the realities of that. Yeah. On the other hand, however, uh, they were very pragmatic. They knew that they wouldn't, they couldn't just keep everybody under control. They didn't have the means. They didn't have missiles to send to anybody. So they knew that uh, their best chance to maintain their grip on the world was to give them a semblance of uh, normal. So what they did was they let them maintain their local languages, their local administration, their religion, for the most part, their culture. Mm -hmm. They started giving different rights to different provinces and different subjects. And by 212, they gave everybody a Roman citizenship. So everyone was essentially a dual citizen. So we have a lot of, and we have a lot of bi uh, multilinguals, bilinguals or trilinguals at the time. We have African citizens who are uh, fluent in Latin and they write in Latin. And they're also fluent in ancient Greek. And obviously they speak their local language and native language as well. So there are a lot of similarities to what we are living now uh, in contemporarily yeah. in our world. So how did these people feel? And how were they being treated? So this is how I started before I actually got to this uh, to the idea of this AI project. The idea was how uh, bilinguals 
and naturalized Roman citizens felt and how they were treated. And I did this from uh, as you know a classicist perspective going through the text. At some point, I realized that I wanted to see how bilinguals actually used the language, mm -hmm. the non-native language, I mean. So I wanted to do a computational analysis of uh, the grammar and syntax. For example, okay. how, let's say, how well they speak. By the way, they were all super fluent. <laughs> but um, you could detect differences between, let's say, earlier uses of uh, ancient Greek and Latin, and then what we call imperial under the Roman Empire. So okay. now my question was, does that have to do with language evolution? I mean, language changes. Yes. Shakespearean language shows English is not the same as the English we speak now. So is it just a matter of language evolution? Or does it have to do with the fact that it's a non-native speaking the language? Mm -hmm. Obviously, I started first as a classicist manually, but there is only, you know, you cannot get yeah. that far with that. So it was then that I realized that I needed computational linguistics training. And that led me to the second PhD that I mentioned before. I worked on that, uh, again, going uh, to address uh, humanities and the humanity issue. Question, how do you feel as a non-native citizen and a bilingual citizen somewhere? Mm -hmm. uh, or bicultural as well, or transcultural. So these are all questions that we are grappling with. We, even now as I speak, I'm sure you've noticed my accent. So it was also a personal motivation and, uh, you know, sort of curiosity behind that. Yeah. Uh, but also how others felt about them. We have um, Romans who are very open to the idea of foreigners and immigrants. For example, uh, the um, Roman statesman and um, uh, orator Cicero said that it's uh, to not accept uh, immigrants is inhumane which is something, again, that we should hit this lesson of the past when we are dealing with uh, people from the Ukraine or, uh, you know, back in 2015 with Syrian refugees and so on. Mm -hmm. But there are also Romans who are very against immigrants mm -hmm. and they feel that uh, we actually have someone, uh, Juvenal, uh, he's a Roman satirist, who says that uh, yes. these uh, Greeks and uh, Syrians and everybody, they are going to come here and uh, get our houses and our wealth. Uh, so it sounds, you know, very sadly, very contemporary and yes. a proof that, you know, history may not repeat itself, but it does rhyme, right? Yes. So anyway, how did these people feel? They naturalized the interloper citizens and how did others feel, uh, others feel toward them? Mm. So this is how I started and I worked on computational linguistics for uh, the specific purpose of analyzing the language use. And then uh, uh, after that, I started thinking, OK, what's the next scale? How do we scale this up? And what are other things that we can learn about them so that we can then learn about us? And that's what led me to this AI project uh, and following the use of these all these descriptive uh, terms. So we are not simply learning about a tool. It's not simply about a course either that you are teaching or that you are taking. Mm -hmm. It's a turning point in the history of the world and of humankind. So as academics and students, our students who are being educated in this, we are in the unique position to be able to explore this because we are the ones building it and learning it as we go. We are the first ones, yeah. if you think about it. So we are in the unique position to explore it, understand it, help regulate it, and more importantly, teach our students all these processes on how to understand it, how to use it, how to explore it, and how to regulate it. Yeah. 
So it's one of the these turning points in our lives and in our academic lives where our knowledge can be of practical and should be of practical use to everybody. And we should get this chance and educate everyone and educate our students to educate everybody that they encounter in their jobs, in their work lives, in their personal lives. Mm -hmm. So that, uh, I would say that we all need to think before we build AI and while we are building AI, think before and while we use AI and teach our students to do the same. So instead of talking about artificial intelligence, try to also boost our personal intelligence. Despite studying classics in the ancient world, Eleni found many connections to our modern day experiences. I'm going to take you back to maybe, I don't know, the 90s. Back then, uh, if you wanted to use a computer, you had to go and have separate training, right? You, you would go and get a certificate, perhaps, in how to use uh, uh, Microsoft Word and PowerPoint, and it was considered a skill. But by the time we hit 2000, basically everybody knew how to use all these tools. It's not considered a skill anymore. By the same logic, I feel that uh, as technology changes, and now uh, all the more rapidly as we uh, move forward, it's the same. Maybe, you know, five, ten years ago when I did the second PhD, you had to have another PhD to do this. But as we move forward, as technology opens up, as universities also catch up with this change and they afford more opportunities, starting from the undergraduate level to our students, opportunities to perhaps be a humanist, but also have, let's say, some understanding of programming. Mm -hmm. I don't feel that we will need, not that we don't need the additional education, it's all additional education, but it's more embedded yes. because it's not the extra anymore. When I started it, I was a classicist and I had to explain to people, okay, why do you need to do this extra? I mean, you can get some results just by manual observation, which initially I did. So I had to explain why I do that. Now I don't need to explain why I did that. So similarly, our students get in, in a more organic mm -hmm. way, they have all these additional complementary enhancing uh, knowledge and skills in their degrees. So it won't be such, uh, it won't be so challenging or it won't, uh, you know, exclude people who actually want to do it because they cannot afford to do a second PhD or whatever else was required 10 years ago. Eleni points out that AI is everywhere, even if we don't know it. And that is why it is so key for students to understand how it works. AI is not just a tool something that uh, only, let's say, computer scientists might use or that Amazon uh, is using. It's everywhere. So we need, uh, there are different ways that we will engage with AI because it is part of our lives. So for example, when you shop online, mm -hmm. I'm not going to reference anybody, but you shop something <laughs> and then you get uh, people who like this might also be interested in that. Yeah. So if you have, you don't realize it, but it is there. Uh, it's part of your life. And if you don't realize it, then you, uh, in a way, you lose your autonomy because you have someone making a decision for you at that point. Don't tell me that you're never tempted to click on the other things that are proposed, <laughs> right? 
But if you don't realize that it's someone essentially giving you an ads towards somewhere. Yeah. If you know how AI works, and I will explain the different ways that um, our students can engage. Um, if you know how it works, then you have more autonomy, you have more critical thinking, and you're more of an agent in your own life in the choices that you are going to make. So you can use AI to facilitate these choices, or it might be interesting. Let me see what other products will go well with that. That's the facilitation that AI brings, so you don't have to scroll, let's say, eternally. But on the other hand, you know that it is something that is AI produced that is being served to you. Mm -hmm. So being conscious of that, you can also, you know, put some barriers as well. There are multiple ways for students to work with and engage with AI, and only a few need an understanding of coding. There are different ways for, the, uh, for, the, for our students, for any student, for anyone, really. Uh, to work with AI and in um, the way I see it is to understand essentially AI. That's that's our power. Yeah. So there are the uh, the fields that are going to be building AI that are currently building AI. We have computer scientists, we have uh, data scientists, and they are building these algorithms. So this is one part of it. There are the people who use it. It could be everyday life, like the examples that I gave you. It's uh, in the medical professions, obviously. Uh, we have it in uh, uh, education, uh, everywhere, really. So they are the users mm-hmm. of AI. Then uh, there are people who work with the results. Sometimes they are, uh, they are the same as the users, or they are the ones who are going to validate these mm-hmm. results before they even get to the users. You need experts, depending on the field that you're working on, sort of uh-huh. you know, user testing before you get it to the users. You have others who are going to consult on these things. And again, all these groups, sometimes they intersect. Uh-huh. Someone who is going uh, eventually to be a user or who works on the user testing should also be a consultant. Yeah. Uh, on other occasions, you need additional consultants. So when you, you have, uh, you know, there are ethical issues that are being uh, raised. You have regulatory issues. Uh, so you need uh, agencies and the government to be consulted on how to regulate the development and use of AI. So you have a, whole, a number of other disciplines uh, that will be involved uh, in that. And then there is also the literature on these topics. Since people started consuming AI, we have novels that are uh, written on AI. Science fiction novels that were written about uh, AI or other you know, similar technological advances, or as people were imagining robots, let's say, back in the 70s or the 80s and so on. Uh, so you will have uh, humanists who will yeah. be going through these texts, and it's not uh, uh, it's not either reductive to the people who are building AI, but it's not reductive for the humanists who will be going through these texts. Mm. It's equally yeah. uh, important because we need to, as I said, people need to understand AI, see how they feel, what yeah. it is about, and writing about it, and other people, you know, reading about this through literature, makes it uh, easier for them to, you know, to relate, to become more comfortable, more familiar. So it's not one way or the other that is going to get you to understanding AI, but the important thing is that it is here, it's infiltrating everything from our jobs to our personal lives, uh, the way people are dating, I mean, it's everywhere. And as I said, it's um, our power is understanding how it works, and how we are supposed to use it. 
According to Dr. Bozia, we are experiencing a unique turning point and have an opportunity to shepherd our students through these experiences. There are uh, several components that uh, our students need to be educated on, and UF is doing an exceptional uh, job because they have involved uh, everyone from the science field, the technology field, the humanities uh, fields. So they, uh, the way UF is building AI is uh, not only sustainable, because it involves anyone, it doesn't exclude any fields, which is also part, you know, of the the democratic process as it goes in the educational process. Everybody, we should uh, we should be educated citizens to yeah. move along. Uh, but uh, they are also building this accountability as they are teaching and educating the students on uh, AI. So as I said before, the there are different. Uh, fields and in the in AI research, starting with the design and the production of uh, AI, use of AI, uh, and then the, the regulation of AI. So our students should understand that they can and should be involved in any combination in any one of these uh, areas or any combination thereof. And they can do that by, let's say, pursuing their major or minor, but also at the same time, uh, UF has the, gives you the opportunity to get an AI certificate which means that you don't need to you know, abandon what it is that you actually love if uh, technology is not the thing that you actually love. But there is a way for you to be educated and informed about what's coming. Uh, at, at the same time, they should understand that, yes, th- there, are, uh, there are worst case scenario and they could all happen if we, again, if we do not get all of us uh, involved uh, in, uh, in the process. But uh, there are several agencies that have been involved in uh, putting together sort of manifests and best practices and best ethical practices. There is, for example, the Future of Life uh, Institute. They came up with um, AI principles. Uh, there is the uh, Montreal uh, Declaration for Responsible AI. Uh, there are crowdsourcing global initiatives uh, where experts from different fields uh, they get together and they put together they um, uh, they put together sort of principles and recommendations on how AI should be how it should be used the regulations and all that the European Commission uh, had also sort of a task force uh, regulating and coming up with um, uh, ethical principles so there are um, several. Uh, sources and resources online that our students, if they are interested, and uh, you know, we are reading things everywhere. You read the news. Uh, these are very light, in a way, readings. So they try to make them very approachable. They are not technical. Mm-hmm. So if you are interested and you want to be, you know, informed, yeah. I'm not talking about necessarily education in the sense of taking a course. Uh, there are several resources and people should learn, students should learn from a, from a young age how they should explore all the information that is av- available to them so that they can educate themselves beyond the classroom and beyond the podium, <laughs> for that matter. Eleni explores the ethics of why is AI being developed and what is its role in universities? We have several um, uh, ethics courses that are being offered also around campus. Mm-hmm. I started with the other tools in uh, uh, again in my attempt to make them available to everybody because ethics courses are going to be available to you know college uh, yes. students. But we do have uh, ethics courses both um, 
let's say, the philosophy department, and they are offering for everybody, but also different departments and different colleges. They start, they have started developing their own ethics courses for their respective disciplines, which okay. is uh, which is also uh, necessary. But there are some common principles of AI. First of all, the everybody agrees uh, from all the other the agencies that I mentioned before and the other think tanks that I have got together that AI should be developed for the good of the humanity. Yeah. Uh, and that takes me also back to, you know, fundamental human needs. Uh, technology may change, but fundamental human needs remain the same. So it's, yeah. it was the same uh, a few decades ago uh, when it came to nuclear power and the way it was used, but how clean nuclear power and much more, uh, much safer it is. Yeah. So AI should be developed for the good of the humanity. Another principle is that it should not be misused. So it, it should not be used for the bad of the humanity. It may seem that it's redundant, but it's uh, there are two different things. To yeah. do something for the good of the humanity and then not to overuse it, not to misuse it. Not to think of it as uh, an arms race with, you know, uh, one country fighting with the other, because then you will have um, an exponential improvement of AI yeah. to the point that we will lose control and then the system will be able to basically improve itself and there will not be any restraint, any secure restraint. So, yeah. uh, so that's why I said for the good of the humanity and not for the bad of the humanity, yes. no misuse. Yes. We should strive for autonomy. That's another thing that all these agencies have agreed on. Uh, maybe they, uh, they phrase it differently, but autonomy in uh, two different um, uh, two different aspects. One is not to make the systems entirely autonomous, so there should be human supervision throughout the process and after the fact as well. The results you should have someone basically a human checking the results. And then autonomy for us as well, to not just leave everything to AI, because then we are losing the capacity essentially for critical thinking. Yeah. Uh, then the, any AI system uh, for any field discipline, uh, for any area, it should be just. And this comes before the fact mainly, so not make it, um, try not to embed any bias. Yeah. Uh, I'm sure you are familiar and people are familiar with uh, Amazon's mistake years ago. Um, I don't know if you would like me to go into this, yes. uh, how the, they used an AI system to help them with the hiring process. Okay. Uh, but um, after a while, they realized that uh, the, uh, the system was discriminating uh, against uh, based on gender and ethnicity, uh, educational background. So how do you do that? It was a system that was built on human ethics, not well-developed human ethics. So for example, when in the, from the CV, let's yeah. say that the software was scanning, uh, they could understand that uh, the, the person was a human, for example, they yeah. would discriminate against that. Uh, how do you discriminate against ethnicity based on the name of the applicant? Yes. She explains why ethics and the human touch are so important in the development of AI. So whenever you build uh, any AI system for anything, it should be just and it should be made to avoid unfairness and perhaps hopefully to help also people, train people into not being unfair. Yeah. 
Yeah. But AI systems are not unethical or immoral. We are building them. We sh- so we should we should build accountability and justice yeah. in them. And uh, uh, then last but not least is making them understood, building intelligibility in them. So how was how was this made? How does it work? Mm-hmm. We need to understand it to make yeah. it better as, as it is. And then intelligibility brings also accountability. Mm-hmm. So these are some of the basic principles that everybody agrees one way or another. Uh, maybe, as I said, phrased differently or in different fields. But these are some of the basic principles yeah. that we are trying to build AI upon. Dr. Bozia explains the importance and value of embedding AI content and skills into the curriculum. It really depends on the on the course. Obviously, we understand that there are either courses or disciplines. Uh, I don't believe that there are disciplines that are not affected or will not be affected by AI. But there may be courses that do not necessarily, you know, have anything to do with AI. That being said, uh, the uh, well, if your course is part, let's say, of a certificate or of a bigger, you know, larger initiative, I'm hoping that every initiative of this sort will have an ethics course embedded in it as a requirement, not as an elective. Mm-hmm. Then for courses where you are teaching AI, so it's one course, it's not part of my research group, for example, it's not part of a larger initiative at this, uh, at this point. Yeah. It's uh, up to its instructor. The, the resources are out there. Uh, they can educate their students, they can teach them how to think about this, how to build this, how to think while they are building this, uh, have involved students from different disciplines, yeah. because then you are building accountability within the team as well, okay. which is also a more organic way, which is what I found with my uh, research group, since okay. it's, um, I'm not teaching a course on this, mm-hmm. so I cannot necessarily tell them you need to study this or I read this. I'm sharing uh, readings uh, with them. Obviously, we have discussions, but I've seen that the the most uh, beneficial way to do this is when you when it comes naturally and organically. Yeah. So when you have the humanist or the social scientist or the doctor, depending on what it is that you are building, uh, when you have them in the team working with the yeah. team then there is building accountability. The mm-hmm. computer scientists and the data scientists cannot and will not ignore that. They are very open to understanding yeah. of what it is that is being needed, who is going to use it or who is going to be affected if it's a patient, for example, by this. Yeah. So built-in accountability in addition to you know, all the resources, the, obviously the courses, things that you know, we all do. Uh, but make people, as I said at the beginning, understand AI naturally, organically, uh-huh. uh, and it's uh, built in everything in the process. Dr. Bozia is encouraged and hopeful as she sees students curious to learn more about AI and the ethics of AI. I am very optimistic uh, by what I see from our students okay. and from our colleagues uh, for that matter. They are all uh, very sensitive. They are all hyper and highly aware of where this might lead if we are not, you know, conscious of what we are building and what we are using. Uh, So I see that students are actually seeking to learn, to be educated and to be informed. 
which uh, again brings me back to what I said before about the, do it, doing it organically. You can force someone to do something and they will learn. I mean, if it's part of the, the syllabus, they have to learn it, right? But you cannot guarantee that they will connect with this necessarily uh, or that they will feel this yeah. as they should. But uh, so when I see our students uh, wanting to learn about all these things and being concerned about the AI, the ethics uh, in AI themselves, then this is, you know, uh, this is the best, the, the best way yeah. to uh, to go when they know uh, what they're getting their hands on. So uh, the uh, hurdle, I don't think that from a technical um, standpoint, we have problems here at UF, as I said, the simplest way uh, there is the AI certificate. We have courses, uh, there are uh, workshops, uh, informational sessions, uh, everything. So there is the easy uh, and you know normal for us in, uh, in colleges and universities way to go about it. This is not to say that students won't face challenges, especially given that UF is not the last stop along students' journey. Instead, they will go on as part of a workforce that should be equipped with skills, knowledge, and enthusiasm. What I think is the, the biggest hurdle is what happens when our students leave the university and they enter the workforce. So that's why, as I said, everything comes from the beginning when you educate them properly. So if yeah. they go out in the workforce, some of them, they are already doing the AI certificate and they may graduate now in May, right? Yeah. There is, so far, there's been very little, if any, regulation from agencies or the, uh, the government or at a judiciary level. Uh, the, uh, the employers themselves, they are learning as they oh, go. Yeah. So that's why I think that the, the biggest hurdle they will, uh, they will face would be to try to educate others as well, their, um, their colleagues and their employers and the agencies they're going to work for and try to bring this knowledge and this information to them. Uh, beyond that, within the uh, UF community, uh, so far everybody is making it, as I said, very open for anyone to be involved, to learn about it, not just not necessarily yeah. to, or to work with it. What are key steps for faculty to engage with AI and teach AI? It depends on the discipline. Okay. So uh, you're talking, I'm assuming, about someone who is not necessarily um, yeah. computer science yeah. related. Yes. So the first would be uh, being educated themselves. Okay. So educate themselves on this and see how it fits, okay. what it is that interests them. So are you looking, for example, are you teaching a literature course? Mm -hmm. uh, and you just want to see what's the latest literature on AI. So okay. this is one way to go about it. Are you doing uh, linguistics and you are interested in natural language processing? Okay. So then you are going to, uh, there is software available that uh, does not require necessarily, uh, I should say that, programming on your end. Uh -huh. uh, you can input your data okay. and get your results. So if you want to analyze a text, as I said, the grammar, grammar yeah. use. So is this the way that you want to go? Okay. If you want to do this again, and you are not trained, first of all, you need to educate themselves on the tools that are out there, and then start with texts uh, that you have already worked on, so that you can actually check and double check the results. Yeah. Because there is 
there are two sides to this uh, coin. When there is software readily available, uh, it's, it makes it easier for anyone. You don't need to learn coding, which is the upside. The downside, though, is that you don't know how it works. Which means that you cannot actually confirm whether the results were processed properly, yes. whether there is bias, again, depending on the, on the discipline. Okay. So that's why I said that uh, if you go, uh, uh, if you want to work on a particular software to enhance your own research and you do not want to get into the coding, start with something that you can actually test yeah. yourself. Yeah. Uh, if you are already teaching AI and the part that you are interested in is embedding uh, ethics yes. information. Yeah. And you cannot necessarily, as I said, it's one course. You cannot tell your students, go and sign up for yet another course for three credits. Yeah. Then there is uh, information and the resources uh, available online through our libraries, through uh, credible uh, websites yeah. and agencies. And you should start with that, okay. the general one, and then try to tailor make it as much as possible okay. to your own discipline. Okay. Ethics can be a very general field yeah. to understand what is ethical and what is not, what is moral, what is not, what is just and what is not. But on the other hand, we all have our particular disciplines and uh, we need to, again, tailor make it to, okay, ethics in medicine, ethics in chemistry, ethics in, uh, in classics. By involving all students, we are creating opportunities for everyone to be educated and gain a greater understanding of the world. I have had uh, only positive interactions with our students and very interesting. And I will say what I, uh, I will explain what I mean by interesting. I have students, as I said, from computer science and from data science, so from the uh, technical uh, uh, disciplines. And what is fascinating is that they come to me because they want, they have the skills but uh, they say that they find that the project is very meaningful because it's going to give us information about people, about society. Yes. And it's very moving uh, and it, it makes me very optimistic to see that uh, young people want to put their skills to good use. Mm -hmm. So it's, uh, for me, it's heartwarming, uh, to be honest. Before we adjourned for the other uh, fall semester, we had one final team meeting and I had uh, a data science student who asked me a very specific grammatical question about something very particular in ancient Greek and Latin, something that I never explained to them. I'm, all, I'm consulting with them, so they didn't, I'm not asking them to learn Greek or uh, Latin grammar. Uh, and he asked me a very specific question and I told him, okay, how did you, I mean, how? <laughs> and he told me, uh, you know, I found a very comprehensive uh, grammar and I found this particular paragraph, so I wanted to understand how it works. Otherwise, I couldn't make the, uh, the software very specific to ask for this thing. Oh. So it's, uh, again, it's educating students. And here we are trying to make them uh, know you have this requirement. You need to take three humanities credits when there are natural and organic ways to get them involved. AI projects and courses are a fantastic place to help students see past singular disciplines and fields and find meaning in necessary collaborations that yield positive results. I have uh, students also, as I said, from other disciplines, uh, so social sciences, uh, humanities, etc. Uh, they are, they are really, they want to get involved. 
they want to understand, they want to learn. So they are working very hard and I'm giving them some basic training into you know, very basic programming so that they can follow. I don't expect them to program code. Uh, I mean, it's, it's, it's a research group. I want them to get skills, but I'm not going to force them to do that. But they also need to, if they understand how programming works, at least the basics, the fundamentals, uh, then they can communicate better also with the computer scientists and they know what can be done and what cannot be done. Mm-hmm. So there is a very, uh, again, a very nice collaboration yeah. and communication. So both uh, types, if I, I don't want to be reductive, there are not only two types of students, but if we want to break yes. it down to technical and non-technical, they are both very enthusiastically engaged and they want to understand, to work, to learn. Uh, it's been a magnificent experience uh, over the past couple of years. Eleni suggests that merging the modern and classics and solving problems is how we can make students into lifelong learners. If I were to bring it back to the the humanities uh, end of things, it's the more democratic way to go uh, go about it. The the more people are involved, this will have a trickle-down effect not only in different disciplines, but in different professions, different social strata, uh, different economic strata, then you are making everybody a part of this, everybody knows what it is, everybody can contribute, everybody can ask for their rights, either in participating or in, you know, uh, the way this is being used or how it affects them. Yeah. So it's a more democratic way to go. Otherwise, think what is the alternative? Then you are concentrating a power that's very hard to regulate and to really grasp at this point how far it can go and you are concentrating this power on the hands of how many? Only the people who can build this? Yeah. This is scary on any level, yes. if you think about it. And it's also scary not only for AI, for everything. This is why we have news. This is why we have information flowing around. Mm-hmm. Because you want everybody to be educated to the point that they can make the right decisions, they can understand what is happening to the world, how it affects them. And AI is not that different. It may be scarier (laughs) now, but it's not that different. The power, uh, accountability and power and the power to make decisions needs to be in the hands of everybody. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Teaching Beyond the Podium podcast series. For more helpful resources developed by the Center for Teaching Excellence, visit our website, teach.ufl.edu. We're happy you joined us and we hope to see you next time for more tips, strategies, and ideas on teaching and learning at the University of Florida.